Hi everyone, welcome to church. Today we're gonna to be continuing our series through It's Personal, talking about the personal experience that we have with Jesus throughout his death, his resurrection, and even a few days after his resurrection. So today we're gonna to be talking about the evidence that we have of Jesus's resurrection and things like that. And we're gonna be in John chapter 20. So if you would get your Bible out, turn to John chapter 20, and we're gonna start reading in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you sent your Son uh, to forgive our sins, to die on a cross, and to raise again. And Jesus, we, we are so blessed by being able to have proof and evidence and, and confidence knowing that you have saved us. You have cleansed us. You have made us clean. And so, Father, as we as we seek to know you better, I pray that your words would be here today, that you would speak through your word to our hearts and that we would be changed. We love you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Many people, as we study these kinds of uh, happenings after Jesus uh, resurrected from the dead, they study things like the apologetics of Jesus's death and resurrection, which is good. And there's different, I mean, there are entire libraries that are full of books and information and facts and figures and all of these things that, that are full of great uh, evidence that Jesus did come to earth and that he lived a perfect life that was accurately prophesied and that he even died and rose again. What we are looking at today will be what that means to us personally, what that means to us in a very personal way and in, in a way that should really affect not only our mind and our attitude in our intellect, but also in our hearts and how we live our lives on a daily basis. And so that's the idea of this. It's personal. It's actually feeling it in our hearts, not just knowing it in our heads. So the first thing that we want to look at here is the disciples as they sit or the apostles as they sit in the room after the resurrection, fearful. You see, even though Christ had risen from the dead, the disciples were still afraid. They, it was a very confusing time. It was a very intense time. They, the Jews had just put Jesus to death on a cross. And even though he, there, there were definitely rumors and there were definitely even a couple of evidences that Jesus had risen from the, the dead, there was still that 
just unease of what was going on. And, and they were thinking about, you know, what's going to happen next? What do we do next? All of these kinds of things. And so the, the things that I think about were probably at the forefront of their mind. There's a couple of things. And, and one of the first things that we want to look at is in Matthew. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he actually kind of references this very situation. And he says in, in Matthew chapter 20, Starting in verse 20, he says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him uh, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, on one on your right hand and the other on your left in, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them himself and said, You know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whatever desires to become, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life the ran- as a ransom for many. You see, this first thought that was probably on the, on the forefront of their minds is this conversation that Jesus had with James and John where, and, and their mother uh, when he's talking about the idea of who is the, you know, who will get to sit with you? Well, that's not for me to decide, but what I can say is, are you willing to, to do the things that I'm going to have to do speaking of his death, speaking of his crucifixion. And you see, I think that this was probably something that they were thinking about in this room that was increasing their fear of like, okay, Jesus was talking about we were going to we were going to drink the same cup that he drank. We're going to drink that cup of crucifixion and crucifixion would have been a very real thing and a very present thing, especially in this time for them. And so they were fearful in this room. And then the other thought that they're, they're probably thinking of, again, having at, at the very least rumors of Jesus's resurrection, is, is what do we do now? You see, Jesus is our friend. He's our brother. He's the person that we've spent the last three years with intimately getting to know and and teaching us and showing us the way and giving us, I mean, showing us miracles and all of these things. What do we do now that he's gone? We don't know. Now we see the answer to this in chapter 21 of John because we see Peter, he goes back to his old life. He goes back to fishing. Um, And this is after he had even seen Jesus. I think that he was just waiting for a command really from Jesus. But, But this idea of going back to the old ways, going back to what's familiar, going back to what they knew uh, before Jesus. And so we see these couple of feelings that they were having. They were afraid. They needed reassurance. And what's amazing is Jesus shows up. It's like he poofs into the middle of the room to give them that reassurance, to give them that faith, that hope. He offered them really two forms of proof that that it was indeed him in the room. And we see that the first one in verse 20 of John chapter 20, verse 20, it, it says this, 
it says, <clears throat> so when, the, he had, when he had said this, after he said, peace be with you, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You see, he gave them physical proof that he was who he said he was. He had physical scars that they could see and they could touch and that they were able to prove that he was there. Now, we often talk about the scars in his hands and in his side and probably in his feet as well as being pretty evident. One of the things that I think is going on here with their somewhat, I mean, if you read some of these accounts, it seems like they're, they have a difficult time recognizing him after the resurrection. And my thought is, and this is completely my thought, so I'm just going to throw it out there. You guys can throw it away instantly if you want to, and I'm okay with that. But my thought is, if his hands show the scars of his crucifixion, why would his face not show the scars of his crucifixion? Uh, his beard was pulled out of his face, and that would leave some pretty gnarly scars, and the crown of thorns on his head would disfigure his face. So I'm sure that he looked familiar to them, but it was probably very difficult to actually truly recognize him as who he said he was. And so when they were able to see those scars, it reassured them that, hey, this is actually Jesus. This is actually the guy that we, we have spent all this time. The second thing that he shows them, the second proof that he gives them is spiritual truth. Read in verse 21 with me. It says, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, he is, there's something about the presence of the Holy Spirit that calms fears and helps to see clearly what steps to take next. Turn, if you will, just a few pages to the left to John chapter 16. And I'm going to read in verse 5. And it says this, Jesus is talking, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the helper that he will leave behind when he, when he is resurrected and leaves this earth. And he says, but now I go away to him who sent me, speaking of the Father, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. <clears throat> However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit gives to us the, the guidance that we need to follow Jesus Christ. He gives us the words to speak. He gives us the wisdom and the knowledge to, to answer people their questions. And so Jesus gives them this spiritual proof that it is him by giving them the Holy Spirit and telling them to now be sent out and to actually follow God's will for their lives. And again, that, that just peace that surpasses all understanding comes from the Holy Spirit in our lives. It comes from that, that understanding that we have faith in Jesus and therefore he gives us the helper to guide us through this. And, and these are very important things. And, and this continues on for them 
And now Thomas shows up on the, on the scene. And Thomas, look, Thomas gets a bad rap. This poor guy is defined, as many of us in the Christian world know him, as doubting Thomas. And I know for me personally, I don't want to be defined by my, my worst mistake or my lower points in life. And so I, I can't feel like, I don't think he, he's proud of this idea that we call him Doubting Thomas. Um, I think he would prefer to just be called the twin, uh, as, as the Bible says. But he wasn't in the room when Jesus came. And so because he wanted to see his Savior, we all call him a doubter. Now, I assume that none of us would have asked for anything less. I don't, I don't think I would have asked for anything less, but to see Jesus. You see, this is a miracle that we're talking about. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Anybody that tells me, hey, Bill just rose from the dead, I'm going to want to see that before I believe it. I'm going to want proof of that before I believe it. So I don't think that he was asking anything that we wouldn't have asked. He wanted to see the, the, the scars. He wanted to have proof that Jesus was who he said he was and that these people were not being fooled. And when we talk about that, we have to talk about a few things concerning the resurrection. And the first one that I want to talk about is the legality of witnesses. And if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're talking about the legality of witnesses and, and well, we'll just talk about it in a second. But it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered, you, uh, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep." In a court of law, even today, eyewitnesses have a very high regard. People who were actually there when the bank was robbed, people who were actually there to see the crime being committed and give a testimony of what they saw are held in very high regard because they're able to corroborate or to prove falsely what's going on or what happened. And when you have any court of law, if they have three to four, maybe five witnesses that saw the events or that recorded, nowadays we have telephones that we can all just pull out and record what's going on. But when you have those few people that can, can corroborate the evidence, that can, that can tell the same story, this is never in doubt that what they're saying, or very rarely at least, is it, is it in doubt that what they're saying is the truth. What they're saying is the true story and the full story. And so where what we have here is we have 500 accurate, similar accounts of people. Now, again, we don't have all of those, those accounts as far as today, but during Paul's day in the Corinthian church, they did have those accounts because a lot of them were still alive to that day. And you could have talked to them about the fact that they had seen Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection. We see that that the visual proof was so important. And part of that is because, you know, if it's a stranger that comes to you and says, hey, Bill just rose from the dead, you're unlikely to believe it 
but if 10 strangers come, you're kind of starting to feel that. But if you have friends and brothers and sisters and family coming to you and saying, hey, Bill just rose from the dead, you are likely to believe that story if, the, if it all makes sense to you. And so Thomas here, we see that he asks for that visible proof that Jesus had to give to him. Over 500 witnesses. This is not something that really is questionable. If, you, if all of those witnesses are telling the same story, so we can be confident that they saw the actual Christ and not an image. I've, I've heard it said that people say, well, in times of grief, you know, you can, see, you can see strange things. And that's true. I'm not denying that. But to have 500 people at one time see the exact same thing is unheard of. Really, to have two or three people at one time see the exact same thing is unheard of. And so, here we have great confidence that, that many people saw Jesus. And Paul even goes on in 1 Corinthians to talk about how he actually saw the risen Christ as well. And so, we have that as well. Secondly, it, as we look at the resurrection, we want to know that we have the assurance of sight. So, we have the legality of witnesses. Now, we have the assurance of sight. And turn to John chapter 20 again and, and read in verse 25, it says this, The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. As weird as it sounds, our faith can increase because of others' faith, faith increasing. Thomas desired to see Jesus to believe that he, he was alive. And then we read that he instantly believed in verse 28 that we'll talk about in a minute. And Jesus even gives a, a personal encouragement to us in that moment as well to us today. But we see the, the assurance of sight. Once you actually see, once you actually can, can feel it, I will believe. And, and, I don't want to gloss over the fact that the disciples were Thomas's probably closest friends. And they're telling him, we saw Jesus. We saw him. We, we, we have seen the Lord. And, and how encouraging that would be. And I'm sure that Thomas wanted to believe it and was excited to believe it even. And maybe doubting isn't the word. Maybe he just wanted to experience it himself. Maybe he was just feeling bad that he wasn't in the room the first go around. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with desiring to actually see the risen Christ. Now, we eventually will get that point, get to that point of getting to do that. But I want to read in verses 28 and 29 what this, inter, this, this exchange between Jesus and Thomas. It says, And Thomas answered after, after Jesus says, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him in verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, that's us. That's that personal encouragement that we have because we have not seen and yet we believe and we are blessed for that. You see, Thomas had the opportunity with Jesus in that room at that moment. So we looked at the legality of witnesses. We looked at the assurance of sight. And finally, we want to look at the confidence of commitment. Thomas, and though we call him doubting Thomas, Thomas saw Jesus and saw that he was really there and immediately believed and called Jesus Lord and God. Again, in verse 28, we see that. 
He submitted to Christ's authority in his life by using those two words. They are words that, as we talked about in the My King uh, sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, mandate submission and service to Jesus as Lord and to Jesus as God. We cannot say my Lord and my God and not be submitting to and committing to him. Because if he is our Lord, then he is Lord over all. If he is our God, then he is God over all. And so Thomas, in this moment, he sees Jesus. And I, I, I think it's interesting that we don't see him actually touch Jesus. I don't know if he did. I, I, I assume he did. But, but again, it's not recorded, so we can only speculate, which gets into danger zone to be truth. But we, we see him immediately believe Jesus is actually who he said he was. We see him immediately call him Lord and God and immediately submit to his authority in his life. The truth is Thomas doubted as most of us would. And yet as soon as he was able to see, he believed. Again, we have not seen and yet we believe. And so one day, and it will be a beautiful day, we will actually be able to see Jesus and we will be able to, our faith will be made complete our faith, our faith will be made whole in that moment, as Paul talks about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now, we see through a mirror dimly, but in the future, we will see clearly. And so that is how we live our lives right now. So what does this mean? And we want to talk about finally the reason of all of this and the reason of, of this account of Jesus Christ throughout the book of John. And I'm glad that John decided to put this in his book because it gives us a very specific reasoning behind reading this and studying this. Often we talk about the reason that, that certain books in the Bible were written, whether it be the Proverbs were written to gain wisdom or the Psalms were written to worship Jesus or worship God or, or you know, Romans was written to experience theology and, and gain doctrine and build doctrine. The purpose of, of this book here is really twofold in, in its purpose. The first is the belief in Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 31, actually. The first part of verse 31. It says, but these are written... Sorry, I'll, I'll start in verse 30 of chapter 20 in John. It says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, speaking John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is great to know more about Jesus. There is, there is a beautiful part of knowing about Jesus. We should have that belief in Jesus Christ that we're talking about. That is one of our key purposes in life. We are to know him and to make him known. Uh, through the book of John, we're able to help lead others to a faith in Christ and to be discipled by his word through seeing how he lived his life, a perfect uh, really a perfect lamb led to the slaughter, culminating in the forgiveness of all sins of all mankind. It is a beautiful thing that we have access to, and so we should be studying that. We can be confident that Jesus is God, and that the words he said and the miracles that he did were from and through him being God, based on the beginning of the book of John, John 1.1, where we see John describing him as the Word, and, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So from the very earliest point in the book of John, John cha chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Jesus is, is God. 
we see that, that he is who he says he is. And so that's the authority with which this book was written, this entirety of this book. And so we have that belief that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he is capable to forgive and to pay for and to wash away all of our sins. And this leads us to the second reason for the book of John, and that's apologetic, uh, apologetics and head knowledge. And, and again, oftentimes we use the word head knowledge and a lot of times it has that negative connotation. I don't want to give it that negative connotation. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And starting in verse 16, it says, so this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. John is part of scripture. And so we should be reading the book of John, understanding that it gives us doctrine. It gives us how to reprove others. It gives us correction. It gives us how we should be living our lives. And so that gives us this apologetic of not only being able to show it to others in, in their faith, and, and increasing their faith, but also to be showing ourselves how we can change, how we can do better, how we can submit to the Lord in His Lordship. It is, it is good to have the information about the reality of God in our lives and in the world. We need to be asking questions. The more you study, the more study you do, the more confidence you will have in your faith. And, and when I say study, I mean certain things like this. What was happening in the book? What was going on in, in Israel at the time? What was going on in the world at the time of Jesus? Who, who was in charge in Israel? Who, who were the leaders? Who were these people? Are they real people? Do we have archaeological evidence and historical evidence that they actually existed? What was, what was the economy like? These things are important to understand, you know, the different taxes and things like that that the Jews were experiencing under the Roman Empire. What was the culture like? You know, how did they live their life different from the way we lived our, live our lives? Obviously, there's, there's vast differences technologically speaking, and those can be important, but those are kind of low-hanging fruit. What, what about, you know, what did they do for fun? What would Jesus have done for fun um, in his life? And, and we should be studying these things so that we can know more about the Bible. The, these various facts and figures not only help others to see what Jesus, that Jesus did in fact exist and rise from the dead and, and uh, was crucified, but help us personally be confident in what we say we believe. And that is what convicts our hearts to, to a change. It is very important to understand that these facts and figures and things like that are very good to know, but they are not faith. That's head knowledge. It's not faith. These facts encourage us to pursue more about Jesus because we can see more real who he is and we can experience him more personally. It's important to know them so that we can have a more intimate knowledge of who he is. But what that does is that starts to convict our heart. There's a, there's a saying, I don't know if it's very common anymore, but it, it, it goes something like, don't miss, on, miss out, or there's a lot of people that are going to miss out on heaven uh, by 18 inches. 
And, and the whole idea is it's supposedly 18 inches from your brain to your heart. And, and if you have all of this knowledge, head knowledge does not trump heart change. I'm going to say that again. Head knowledge does not trump heart change. The hope is that head knowledge will lead to heart change, but we must not fall into the trap of believing that intelligence leads to salvation. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is the belief in him. And I want to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read a section of this chapter again to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It says in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Christ has to have risen for our faith to mean anything. Jesus Christ has to have died on the cross and risen again on the third day for our faith to matter at all. Because if he didn't, then we're still dead in our sins. If he didn't do that, then we should still be sacrificing animals at the altar. If he didn't do that, then there, there has to be another way. And if there is no other way, then, then we're hopeless. And so all of this head knowledge is fantastic and we should gain. Look, I am a book nerd. I love reading. I love learning more about it. I have book series on, on the culture of when Jesus was walking the earth, what was going on in the, time, in the land of the Jews, you know, what was happening in Israel, what was going on when Jesus was there. And I love reading about that. I love learning about that. But, but if I just love learning about it, then I could go be a professor at a university or I could go, you know, be an archaeologist or something. I love learning about it because what it does it is it increases my faith. I often tell people, especially in an apologetics course, is it possible to prove that God exists? And, and I let them stew on that question for a minute. Is it possible to prove that God exists? And the answer is no. It is not possible for any man, woman, or child to 100% prove that God exists without a shadow of a doubt. It is impossible. But we have a lot of evidences that show us that it's likely that he does. And then the more information that we get, the more confident we can be that God does in fact exist. We can be more confident that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did and that we can trust this book. We can trust the Bible. We can trust what we study here. And so as we do that, what, what happens is if it took, if there was zero evidence, it would take, let's say, 100% faith. If there was zero evidence that Christ ever existed or there was zero evidence that, that God ever said that he, you know, created the earth, whatever. Now, as we study, we start 
moving that dial to say, well, I, I have 50% proof that God exists and I have 50% faith that he exists. And my goal in life is to get to that point where I am 99.99999 repeating percent sure that God existed and then faith is that thing that kicks me over the top. And I have a lot of faith <laughs> that that is what's going on. I have a lot of faith that my purpose in studying the word is to grow me closer to Jesus, not in a futile effort, but in a way that changes my heart, changes who I am. Look, there are consequences. What Paul is saying here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, there are consequences if Christ did not rise from the dead. Our faith is futile. We should be pitied among all men. There are bigger consequences if he did. You see, if he, if he did rise from the dead, then there's a consequence for my sin. If he did rise from the dead, then there is a responsibility on me to live a life that is glorifying to him. If he did rise from the dead, if he did die on the cross, then I have a responsibility or at least I have an opportunity to be saved and to live for Jesus Christ. What do you believe? What do you have as your hope? Who is your savior? How do you know? These are questions that we should be, they have to be answered before we take our last breath on this earth. Because once you take your last breath on this earth, it's too late to answer those questions. And so dig deep into the word of God and seek him out and he will show himself to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that we have the evidence, we have the proof, we have the, the confidence that you did come back from the dead and that you did show yourself to many people, Lord, and that, the, that there is historical evidence that you existed and even historical evidence that you died on a cross. There's, there's archaeological evidence that not only you existed, but also the kings and the rulers and the people that were around you that are mentioned in the Bible, that they existed. Lord, we can be confident that we know we have a Bible that is accurate because of the different proof texts and, and master texts that they have that are copied word for word down through the line. We thank you that we have these things, and Lord, we don't want to leave them as just head knowledge, but we want that to seep into our hearts so that we experience what it means to love you better and to love you more. We love you so much, and we just ask that you would increase our love for you, teach us how to love you more, and show us the way. In your name, amen.